I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class. I've never even put anything in a quilt show. But I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy, and I'm a quilter, and welcome to episode 26, in which we get ancestral. And this episode is being recorded on Friday, October 22nd, 2010, if that matters. <laughs> in any case, today's episode is going to be my saga about my antique quilts, uh, soup to nuts. I know I've mentioned them in passing before this episode. I'm actually going to be talking directly about this one. And actually, I'm going to follow this episode with an episode all about documentation and labeling, because this whole story about these antique quilts really has engendered in me some very strong feelings about the need to document and label your quilts. Um, Normally, as you know, lately I have been doing the content of the episode and then going into listener comments and Sandy updates, etc. I need to let you know there are no listener comments this week, not because people haven't been talking to me, but because I had a computer meltdown. I came home from my last business meeting um, the weekend before last with both a head cold and a computer virus, both of which I had picked up from various of my cohorts at the meeting. And um, I have spent the last week recovering from both. So uh, I ended up really kind of radio silence from my end. I wasn't really on the blogs much. I wasn't in Big Tent much. I apologize to those of you who may have thought I just dropped off the face of the earth, but I was really trying to, um, you know, grab back onto the edge of the earth with my fingernails or something, pull everything back together. I am uh, pleased to report that I'm probably 85% on both counts, 85% recovered on my laptop and 85% recovered from the cold. Um, so pardon me if you hear me sniffling a little bit, etc. today. I'm going to try to keep that on the QT. Um, that being said, I do appreciate the fact that I even have listeners. <laughs> Thank you so much to everybody who is listening. I appreciate everybody that did send comments. I read them as I got them. I just don't have them now to refer to. So thank you for the warm fuzzies that you sent me over the last uh, couple of weeks. And thank you especially to those who sent pictures. Um, that does mean if anybody actually emailed me pictures um, and emailed me since the last episode that I posted, especially about the holiday gift giving challenge, you need to email me again because I don't want to lose putting your names in the drawing. Um, if, however, you have posted comments and blogs or, or things like that, then I can probably dig them up again. But it's only if you emailed me directly. I no longer have those emails. So please email me again and I'll make sure I, I put you on the list. Speaking of the holiday gift-giving challenge, don't forget about it. I guess I shouldn't call it a challenge. I should probably call it more of, you know, the motivational incident. <laughs> I don't know what I want to call it. But in any case, remember that um, if you let me know that you have finished some of the projects on your holiday gift-giving list, I will enter your name in a drawing for a prize. You know, you, you get a nice little reward for your hard work. Um, I do need to say that that somebody has set a rather high bar for the rest of us at the moment. Lynn is en fuego. She <laughs> is finishing a lot of her gifts very quickly. Um, she's posted pictures in the Flickr group of gifts that she's finished. And let me just say, there are some very lucky people on her gift list. Lynn, I was um, coveting several <laughs> of the, the gifts that you've posted. They're just, your fabric choices are just gorgeous. Um, 
And so, again, if you have, if anybody has contacted me to let me know that you've been on the holiday gift, that you've uh, completed the holiday gift giving challenge, you need to contact me again, for which I greatly apologize. Um, now, speaking of the holiday season and the gift giving season, over the next several months, this is when a whole lot of holidays from various cultures and faiths do occur, and most of them somehow involve gifts. So what I thought would be kind of fun to do is I'm going to swap out for a little while. I have one last Quilter for Like the Rest of Us interview still in my back pocket, and I'll share that one next week. That's in a different file system. I just haven't been able to pull that much together yet after my reformatting. Um, But what I do want to start doing, and I'll do one this week and then maybe skip a week and then we'll, we'll get back into this. I started a discussion on the Quilting for the Rest of Us Big Tent subgroup, um, oh, a few months ago now, on what was the most meaningful gift you ever gave. And I've gotten quite a few responses, so I thought it might be nice in this season for me to introduce each episode with sharing one of those stories. Um, so this first week, we are actually going to share, and I'm, I apologize, this was not intentional. I pulled this into my notes well before I thought I was going to be mentioning Lynn before, but Lynn actually shared one. She was the first, I think she was the first response in Big Tent to this question, and so I was just kind of grabbing the first one off of there. So it's Lynn again. Uh, Lynn said, and she starts out by saying this wasn't actually her story, her gift that she gave, but it's a great story that she wanted to share. And here's what she had to say. My guild has a raffle table every month at our meetings. Members can bring whatever they want to get rid of, put the item on the table, then others buy a raffle ticket for a chance to win any item they're interested in. One of my friends won a kit for a small applique wall hanging. The lady who had brought the item has macular degeneration and can no longer see well enough to make it. So my friend won the kit, made it, and brought it back to a guild meeting. She gave it to the lady who originally bought it and could no longer see well enough to make it, with the stipulation that when the lady no longer wanted it, my friend would get it back. The lady was very surprised and quite pleased. So thank you, Lynn, for sharing that story. That is a great story. Um, I say thank you to your friend who was so thoughtful as well. That's such a neat idea to do that. So thanks for the story. Kind of puts us all in the holiday gift-giving spirit, I think. Um, I also want to say thank you to all of you who blog. I have been able to um, read blogs, and like I say, even when I get behind in my blogs, I always, always, always read listener blogs. So if you've got a blog, make sure I know about it. And I also want to especially say thank you to a few of you in recent months who have posted reviews of podcasts, um, and I I appreciate it, and all the podcasters appreciate it. We like to know, first of all, that we are being listened to, that's always good, um, but also when you are willing to share the wealth. So thank you so much for your reviews, your kind words. Um, I don't comment when I see those reviews on blogs, because it always feels a little funny (laughs) to do that but do know that it has been noted thank you um, also to all of you who have posted reviews on iTunes and um, just thanks in general for sending comments and emails etc I love getting them so um, you know I, I just love the conversation and I especially love seeing the pictures so join our Big Tent group there's a link directly on the um, webpage for this podcast you have to join the Quiltcast supergroup first and once you join that then you're able to join the subgroups for any of the quilter podcasters and I do hope one of those will be the quilting for the rest of us subgroup um, we also have a Flickr group for quilting for the rest of us you can subscribe to the monthly free newsletter and you can check out my blog that's separate from from the show notes blog 
And you can leave your comments about episodes. You can share your own response to You Know Your Quilter When. Um, you can let us know about your favorite shops. Uh, check out the information about the Holiday Challenge and follow me on Twitter or email me. All of that information you can find at www.quiltingfortherestofus.com. So, on to today's episode. As I mentioned, today's episode is about antique quilts. Now, here's the deal. When my mother passed away, which was a year ago now, um, well, year and a half ago now, in spring, um, we it took us really a couple of months to get the house cleaned out. It was a big house. The house we grew up in was a really big house, lots of rooms because we were a, a very big family, and everyone was full to the brim. So <laughs> it just took us a while to sort through everything. And one of the things that we were all most concerned about was making sure that we found all of Mom's quilts. Um, None of us had any idea how many quilts she had actually produced over her quilting career. We were just amazed when we kept finding them and kept finding them and kept finding them. Um, But there were a couple of things that I was looking for in particular because um, actually not too long before Mom had passed away, she and I had been talking about um, an antique quilt that she owned that a family friend had given to her. It was not our family. It was from a friend of hers. And I wanted to find this quilt because I I sort of knew the family a little bit and wanted to be able to be in touch with them to see if they wanted this quilt back now. And so I was looking for that quilt in particular and and hadn't been able to find it until one afternoon. I was in um, one of the bedrooms, actually the bedroom that I happened to have when I was, when we first moved in the house, I was like five. Um, I outgrew the room quite quickly. It was a very, very small bedroom, and I grabbed one of my older sibs' uh, rooms as soon as I could when they moved out. Uh, but in any case, this I knew that in this particular bedroom had a dresser where I knew a lot of mom's seasonal wall hangings and such lived. And so I was going through the dressers and pulling those out. And I looked up on the closet and noticed up on the upper closet shelf that there were all sorts of bags and you know, things that look kind of rolled up up there. And I saw a little piece of lace or something was hanging down that made me think they were either probably tablecloths up there or possibly more quilts. Uh, So I had, I believe that day I had my daughter and maybe my niece with me and they were sort of my my legs (laughs) as I would find things that I knew I needed to take home. I'd holler, you know, get one of them up to me and I'd hand it to them and they'd run them out to the car. So I yelled for my daughter and I started to pull a couple of these things off the shelf and just kind of peeked open. Um, The first one I pulled off was in a plastic bag, you know, with the kind of drawstring top. And I wiggled it open a little bit and peeked inside and I could tell it was a quilt of some sort rolled up, but I I didn't really recognize it, but I didn't think much about it. And I handed it off to my daughter and she ran it out to the car. I pulled another one off and I pulled another one off and I could tell these were all quilts. Um, some of them were in plastic bags, other ones were just kind of folded up or rolled up on themselves, and actually scared the bejeebers out of myself when I pulled one off the shelf and my mom's cat came with it. Um, the cat apparently had quite clearly turned it into a cat bed back up in that closet, and some of the quilts were just covered, covered in cat hair. No, my mom was, you know, a prolific quilter, but she didn't wasn't always great about storage on this, and I've tried to be a lot better about that now, seeing what can happen. Uh, so in any case, I found, you know, as I was pulling these quilts off the shelf, I realized there was something different about these quilts. And I did open one up, and I finally saw, oh, I think that's this quilt that I've been looking for. I think it was the, the crazy quilt, the antique quilt. Um, that I knew a friend had given her. So I pulled them all off, and I just handed them off to my daughter and niece, and I said, get them out in the car, I'll look at them later. 
Well, later that same, I think it was probably that evening, you know, dust had finally settled, and I went up to my sewing room, and and my kids had just kind of dumped them all on the floor of my sewing room, as kids tend to do. So I cleaned off my cutting table so I'd have some room, and I opened, you know, pulled the first one out of the plastic bag, Ziploc bag, and unrolled it onto my cutting table and realized that this was an antique quilt, and I didn't recognize it. Um, The first one I opened was not the crazy quilt. It was something else, and I didn't recognize it, but I knew, to the best of my knowledge, my mother had never bought an antique quilt. Um, that she had just, she was not one to do that. She wouldn't go out and buy other people's quilts. If these antique quilts were in our house, the chances are they were a family quilt. So I opened the next one, rolled it out, and again, I'm looking at another antique quilt. I find the crazy quilt, I look at it, I kind of set it aside, I pull another one out, it's another antique quilt. Altogether, there were um, two pieced tops, unfinished pieced tops, and three finished quilts, and then this crazy quilt. And when I got to the last quilt, you know, like I said, I'm laying these out on my cutting table, and I'm just unfolding them, trying to be gentle, one after another, I'm looking in each one of them, and each one I'm feeling this is significant. I know this is something. You know, this is I've got to find this out. And I opened the last one up, and I just burst into tears. I could tell this one was old. <laughs> it was clearly there was some significance to this quilt. And so um, I, I got you know kind of really shaky. <laughs> it was a very emotional moment for me. Um, now a little bit of background to this. When I was learning how to quilt, I don't remember my mother ever once mentioning that these quilts existed. I don't remember her ever saying anything about any ancestors quilting. As far as I knew, it was my mom and me. That my mom had just sort of on a whim decided to start quilting, and then eventually I had caught the bug, but that there there wasn't anything else. I only had, um, of my grandparents' two one grandparent died before I was born my my grandmother my mother's mother passed away when I was about three my um, mother's father passed away I was about 15 I didn't know him really well my father's mother um, was the only one that was still alive into my adulthood Um, she died shortly after my son was born Um, but I knew she had never quilted she had she did painting and other sorts of crafts and arts but she had never quilted so I didn't know there was any family history so I'm looking at these antique quilts and I'm thinking, what am I looking at? So the first thing I decided to do was I called my mom's BFF BQF. <laughs> You've heard me refer to my BFF BQF, uh, BQF standing for Best Quilting Friend. Um, I talk frequently about my BFF BQF, Kate. Well, my mom had a BFF BQF. Her friend's name was Marge. She and Margie had known each other at least since high school, if not before and had been friends all their lives, and they started quilting at about the same time, and so they're, you know, they also became best quilting friends. I I often think that Mom and Marge are sort of like what Kate and I are going to be in 35 years. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of a lifetime of history together. So I figured if anybody knew what these quilts were, it would be Margie. So I called Margie, and I said, Margie, I just found some antique quilts. Do you know anything about them? And she immediately said, oh, you've got to call your aunt. Um, I know at least two of those were uh, family gift. You know, they were family quilts that got passed down, and your your aunt had them, and she gave them to your mother. If there's other ones in there, they're probably family quilts, too, because, you know, your mother never bought a quilt. You know, and so Margie was just confirming for me everything that I kind of suspected. Um, so I called my aunts, 
And at the same time, I had to leave messages because I couldn't get a hold of my aunts immediately. Um, my mom had two sisters, and so I left messages with both of them. And meanwhile, I emailed my BFF PQF Kate, and I said, you know, I remember you telling me once about an appraiser. I think I'm going to need to see one. <laughs> so I explained to her what I was looking for. And she then connected me with Beth Davis, which if you remember episode 10, in which we chat with an appraiser, I interviewed Beth um, long after this was over. I mean, this is how I met Beth for the first time. So I I knew I wanted to get them appraised, not from a sense of value, because I wasn't going to be selling these things, but I wanted to get a time frame. I wanted to know how old these quilts were, because I figured that might help me identify, you know, where they came in the family. So by, before I was able to actually see Beth, I did hear back from my aunts, and they both confirmed that they, at least two of them they knew for sure were family quilts, because my one aunt had owned them all of her adult life, and she was able to tell me where they came from. She knew where one came from, the other one they sort of knew, and I actually found out for sure later. Um, There was a third one, the third completed top, neither of them recognized from my description, and I sent pictures, I think, to both of them too. Neither of them recognized it, but they also both said, well, if it was with the other quilts, it was a family quilt, because your mother never bought an antique. So, you know, everybody just keeps confirming this over and over again. And then the two one-piece tops are real mysteries, but I'll talk about that in a little bit more. So once I had their information, and then once I met with Beth, and got an idea of what age, or, you know, kind of what years, what time frame these quilts were in, I was actually able to track down the maker of one of them, confirm the maker of the second one, the one that my aunt's pretty sure, you know, knew who made it, I was able to confirm that. And then um, the third one I'm making a best guess on, um, because of some situations, which I will explain again in a minute. And so, you know, the combination of family legend and going to an appraiser and confirming the dates, and then looking at my own genealogy and kind of tracing uh, things back, I was able to really be able to identify several of these items. And so now what I've done is I've been doing some genealogy here and there. And the program I'm using, uh, Family Tree Maker, you can save photos with different people. And so I've actually put the photos of the quilts with the people that I've identified them with so that they will be part of family record from here on in. Um, And, you know, hence this is my, my passion now about quilt documentation and labeling, which will be the next episode. So in any case, that's in a nutshell the whole story of these antique quilts. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to talk through each of these quilts and tell you what I've learned a little bit about the dating and the history of each of them. Um, This is an episode that really I probably should do as a video as well, the same way I did the Creativity Challenge one. But frankly, I just don't have time to do that um, at the moment. So I'm going to post photos of these quilts in the Flickr group, and I'm going to post them in the order... um, of, that I'm going to talk about them in. So once you've heard the episode, you can go to the Flickr group and check them out. Or if you really want to, you know, you can listen to the episode while you're looking at the Flickr group and looking at the pictures there. Um, so if you want to do that, pause now, go open Flickr, and come back. <laughs> okay, so here we're, um, we're going to move on. I'm going to kind of go through them in a particular order. Not really chronological. I'm not really starting with the most recent working backwards. It's just sort of more categories that I have in my head. Um, Let me open up the photo album myself so that I can look at what I'm describing as I'm talking about it.
Okay, this first picture that you may or may not be looking at is um, an unfinished quilt top, and it's one that I have dubbed the Paramecium Quilt. Um, it's from the 1930s, more or less. It's an applique quilt. And if you see the picture, you'll see exactly why I call it the Paramecium Quilt. Um, it's just squares with borders. It's all on, um, well, I'll tell you what it's on in a minute. But then each block has four little sort of amoeba-like shapes in each corner and then a large amoeba-like shape in the center and those are appliqued in um you know to be charitable i i'm saying it's an unfinished quilt i think you know it looks to me like it's missing maybe a wreath maybe there was going to be something put in between each of these that would pull it all together um maybe they were just going to have leaves put on each one of these maybe these were flower centers um, and then there's the same shape that's in the center of each block is in the, it's sort of like in the cornerstone of each sashing they're just really bizarre looking at the moment <laughs> in in the unfinished version of them um, and like I said I call them paramecium uh, it's Beth thought that it looked like the blocks were probably originally pieced in 1910 to 1920 and then that the applique of the blocks and in the center of the sashing was added around 1930 or so um, because the applique fabrics are much later than the other fabrics and because of the methods used, etc. And so, you know, this seems to me like it's one of those UFOs that we all have on our shelves where, you know, we start it and then maybe 10 years later we get around to doing some more on it and then another 10 years later we may get around to finishing it, that kind of thing. So this one... Even though it's funny looking, it's sort of dear to my heart because it feels very much like something I could see myself doing as well. Um, but the interest in this quilt top, other than the fact that it's kind of entertaining to look at, is what it is actually made from. And so if you look at the next picture that I'm going to post right next to it, is uh, the back of the quilt, which is where you can see what it's made from. And yeah, it's feed sacks um, or flour sacks, sugar sacks. And these were as... You know, if you've read any quilt magazines recently, you know that this is the case because uh, there's been a lot of stuff done about feed sacks lately. Um, feed sacks, flower sh sacks, sugar sacks, etc., were commonly used for clothing and quilting between 1910 and 1930. Um, the type of sack that this is, the printing that's used on it, and so forth, indicated to Beth that it was approximately 1910 that these feed sacks came from. And she said that the pink borders that are on the quilt blocks themselves may also well have been from the feed sacks or from the sugar sacks on, in this case as well uh, that a lot of times the sacks did include just some you know plain kind of calico or fabric um, that would be easily used because they knew at that point people were using these for that purpose for making clothing or quilts now the the difference between the feed sack based block and then the later applique fabrics were what led us to believe that the blocks were most likely begun in around 1910 or so and that the applique pieces were mostly added later. Um, the blocks were pieced by machine, but the applique is all done by hand um, and not really very skilled. <laughs> this, this wasn't, you know, as Beth kept kind of dancing around saying this was bad quilting. It was just, it was unskilled. This was probably maybe the first quilt this person had made or whatever. It's just not the most exquisite of workmanship. Now the sugar sacks are marked as being from Philadelphia. And since sugar at that point wasn't really shipped all that far yet, that would indicate that this was probably pieced by a quilter who lived somewhere near Philadelphia. 
Um, I looked that up in our family tree, and we don't have really re- any relatives of record from Philadelphia, per se, but we do have a boatload on my dad's side from New Jersey, from, you know, I don't know, 1600s even, 1700s, way back, back, and to today, I still have relatives that live in New Jersey. So I'm thinking that that's probably from that branch of the family. Um, our My parents, my mom, became the um, inheritor of the family stuff from both sides of the family. Our our attics were full of um, heirlooms from both sides of the family. So it is certainly within the realm of possibility that this quilt come from came from my dad's side instead of my mom's. So um, that's the paramecium quilt. This one I'm probably not going to finish because the interest on this quilt is the backside. It is seeing those sugar sacks. So this one will probably never get finished, even if I could figure out a way to make those paramecium work. Okay, <laughs> on to the next picture. Um, this one is a Dresden plate variation, and it's also an unfinished quilt top again. This one is probably not by the same quilter as the previous paramecium quilt. Um, this one has, uh, it's, it's done by someone with a little bit more skill, although it's still not, you know, fantastic workmanship. It's still clearly very utilitarian. It's um, the piecing and the um, quilting are not without error, but it is somebody who had more skill than the paramecium quilt. That being said, I suppose, you know, the paramecium quilt could be an early example of work from the same quilter as this one, but they, they're very close in time period, uh, so it's unlikely that somebody would have gotten that much better that quickly, I think. So I, I think these are probably two different people. Again, no idea where this one came from, even less so on the than on the other one, because the other one had the feed sack clue of Philadelphia. This one has no clues on it whatsoever. These, in this one, the blocks were machine pieced, and then it was machine appliqued onto the backing. So this one was all done by machine. Two of the fabric pieces in the Dresden plate leaves, or whatever you would call them in a plate, um, are from the late 1800s. The rest of the fabrics are primarily 1920s and 30s. Um, Beth indicated that there were one or two that might be very early 1940s, but for the most part, these are true 1920s and 1930s um, fabrics. And there's some men's shirting that's evident as well. So this is really, truly a, a true scrap quilt. The center of the Dresden plate on this one is unusual. Usually on Dresden plates, it's just a yellow circle from that time period. Um, in this case, it's not, there's a circle in there, but then there's this kind of, um, oh, I don't remember my geometry, what would you call it, a rhomboid straight shape? It's like a square, but each of the sides of the square are kind of curved in a little bit. Um, so it's really interesting. Again, not exquisite workmanship, not very well done, but it is cute, <laughs> you know, and I'm not a big fan of 1930s style stuff, um, but this one is cute, partly because, you know, it's a family quilt. So um, this one, Beth and I did talk about, I might actually finish this one. It will not affect the value at all. Neither of these um, unfinished quilt tops have particular monetary value at all, um, purely sentimental value. And she said it doesn't affect the value one way or the other if I finish this. In fact, if anything, it'll help it because it's not standing on its own very well. Um, so this one, at some point, yeah, I might put some borders on there. There's no borders on there at the moment and finish it up. The problem is if I put borders on it, unless I really search for vintage fabric, which I'm not sure I've got that much commitment to it, I'd be mixing the reproduction fabrics with the actual vintage. So yeah, I don't, I haven't really thought about that yet. It may get finished someday. It might be a good way for me to practice my hand quilting because um, it's got lots of big open areas to do that. So 
that one, it might continue in its history. Okay, the next um, couple of pictures are of actually the one quilt that I know doesn't actually belong to our family. It is the one that was given to my mom from a, a close family friend. And I have contacted the family and to date, you know, they've not indicated any interest. Um, the family member I talked to, not interested. Um, it didn't seem to think this was going to be an issue. So I still own these quilts. Again, not that I'd ever sell them. So these are not a monetary thing. They are just family history. Um, in this case, yes, I do know the family. There's um, relationship in the church uh, that they all belong to. Um, so there's family history there as well for us, but it's mostly because this is a crazy quilt, and I I just have always loved crazy quilts, so I enjoy looking at this one as well. Um, and there's a pillow that goes with it. The pillow was labeled. My mom had it labeled as 1890s, and Beth was able to confirm that. She said the fabrics in the block um, on the pillow and on the quilts, the fabrics are definitely late 1800s. There may be some... Um, before 1910, but the velvet that's used on the back and the sashing is from between 1920 and 1940. Um, so the blocks were put together and pieced, and then at some later point, then were um, put together and sashed. It's in you know kind of middling condition. There's some fabrics that have disintegrated, and actually this was this process was the most fun because we were really peering at the hand the embroidery that was done um, to see if we could figure out. And there's one stitch, and this is how we knew for sure that the pillow and the quilt did actually belong together um, because it's hard to tell from the fabrics. But there's one. Um, stitch, embroidery stitch, that is really a pretty unique stitch. It's not one you would necessarily see in all the books. And it was on both both the quilt and the pillow. So we knew that they had been done by the same person. And just in general, you know, the, some, your, your quilting style is really a signature. You can tell when you look very closely at somebody's embroidery that, you know, that they've done, if it's done by hand, that it's the same person. The fabric, she has this great story. She was explaining there's something, certain kinds of silks from this time period um, do this thing that they, the official term for it is shattering. It just kind of disintegrates in a very particular way. And that's because um, at that time, the, you know, the, the women were wearing these big, long, flowing kind of hoop skirts made out of silk, and they wanted the silk to make a particular sound when they walk. They wanted it to swoosh, um, and normally silk is too soft to swoosh. So in order for uh, fabric makers to get that swoosh sound in the silk, they would um, soak the fabric in, I believe it's iron salts, in order to make it stiffer and to give it that kind of rustling sound. Well, the the other benefit to the iron salts is it actually made the fabric heavier, and fabric back then was sold by weight, not by the yard. So the um, makers would actually make money off of doing this, off of soaking it in the iron salt. Um, but the problem is what happens is those salts also disintegrate the fabric. So when you're looking at fabrics of any particular of this particular time period, you are going to see silks that have that shattering effect. And that's all because women wanted their skirts to swoosh. <laughs> Just I love that story. This is one of the things I found most fascinating about meeting with Beth is what you can learn about culture just from the fabrics. Um, that was just really cool. In any case, um, when you look at this quilt, uh, one of the other things that Beth and I, and actually Kate, my BFF, BQF Kate, was with me during this whole process as well, uh, we got a real laugh out of the fact that when you look at the crazy quilt, 
Um, one or two of the blocks are really, really complex with a whole lot of small pieces and a lot of embroidery, etc. And then they get progressively more simple from there. <laughs> we were all joking about the fact that, you know, how many of us start out with really grand plans about a quilt and we just sort of run out of steam and you just want to get it done at that point. And you could kind of see that going on with this quilt. So that was fun. Okay, the next quilt I'm going to look at, this one I call the tulip quilt for obvious reasons. It is... Um, appliqued tulips and they're set on point no sashing so it's just this form of tulip blocks and the tulips are scrappy so in each block it's the same two fabrics for each there's two um, tulip heads and then one leaf and the two tulip heads are always the same fabric but it's not throughout the quilt it's a huge quilt i would say probably queen size although you know this was made in the 1940s um was the estimate uh, so it's not, you know, it's the same queen sizes we have now. Bed sizes have changed a little bit, but it's a huge quilt and it's extraordinarily heavy. Um, Beth couldn't really tell what had been used as batting in here. She she knew it wasn't a blanket. You know how sometimes they just layered blankets. It wasn't that, but it's just really, really heavy. And this one was owned by my aunt, so we do know um, who made this one for sure. It was made by my great-grandmother my mom's grandmother um, and again it was made approximately in the in the 1940s one of my aunts owned it most of her adult life and then she gave it to my mom I think in the late 1980s it is scrappy uh, the fabric is from the 1910s to, uh, from 1910 to 1940s and my aunts both told me independently um, when I sent them pictures of this quilt they said oh we all used to sit and pick out fabrics from our clothes and our pajamas you know it's one of those quilts that that you can pick out what you used to wear in one of those tulips and so um, this quilt really does obviously again mean a lot to me um, it's a really beautiful quilt to look at. It's very striking, visually striking. Uh, but just knowing that somewhere in that quilt are my mom's jammies from when she was two or three years old, you know, that's very meaningful. Um, it's not quilted. It is tied. And it's tied in a pom-pom style, but you can't see it from the front. Somehow, um, my great-grandmother was able to bury the the tied part from the front so you can't see it but it held it together and then you can only see it in the back um, it's really interesting I still haven't entirely been able to figure out how she did that it the tulip pattern was very popular in the 1940s and Beth could not find the identical pattern in any of her resources but she found several that were quite similar and she had said you know you probably used a pattern from the newspaper which was common back then but I do need to say that Oh, probably six months ago now, there was, um, I think it was Quilter's World. I'd have to look because I, I think I did keep the article. There was an article in there from a um, a quilter who was reproducing a pattern that had been done in 1940s. And it was not quite identically this pattern, but really, really darn close. And so I had contacted the writer of the article to say, what can you tell me about that pattern? I never heard back from them, unfortunately. Um but I'm I'm almost positive this was probably a pattern that was in a newspaper, um, and then my great great grandmother made it using you know the fabrics that she had around the house. So this was a wonderful quilt. Um, it did. There's a lot of um, damage in the fabrics, uh, partly again just from age and the way that the fabrics were originally made, but it's also partly because it was on my aunt's bed for you know 30 years or whatever it was used, um, which again. I have no problem with that. I I love the fact that I've got a quilt that was so much part of the family and really used and not just something that was tucked away in a box somewhere. So 
that's pretty cool. Okay, on to the next quilt is most commonly known as a Lone Star quilt, but since my family has never lived in Texas, um, I prefer to call it something else, such as the Bethlehem Star or the Morning Star, Star of the East, Rainbow Star. Those are all also star, uh, names for the exact same pattern um, as Lone Star. And this um, quilt, we don't really know who made it. Um, at least, you know, my aunts could not identify it. Uh, it was made in the 1940s. I did have Beth do an official appraisal of this one as well. There, there were only three that she actually did official written appraisals of. In any case, this one, um, she said, is from the 1940s. It was probably originally a bed quilt, but it's an unusual size, um, and it's square, completely square. Uh, but like I said, it's kind of a weird size, so I'm not sure how this would actually fit on a bed. Um, it does have hanging sleeves on it, but we don't really know when those hanging sleeves were actually attached. Beth's appraisal, written appraisal for the states, that the pattern is likely one of the most recognizable quilt patterns to Americans, and it's also one of the oldest patterns. Uh, the, the Lone Star, Rainbow Star, Bethlehem Star, etc. was first known as the Mechanical Star back in England, and then it came over here, so it's been around for a very long time. And Beth also commented in the appraisal that the making of this quilt was not for the faint of heart. Um, those of you who have ever made one of these quilts, will probably you're probably nodding you know, quite emphatically now. Um, I've never tried making one of these, but it is, it's an intense quilt to make. In this case, in the case of this quilt, uh, Beth said it's most likely that it was made from a kit. It's sort of unusual color combinations that they're really cool. You know, I, I love the colors on it. Um, and she said it was most likely a kit, but that the quilter who put it together was extremely skilled. Uh, the The star itself was hand-pieced and then hand-applicated onto the background, and then the entire quilt was hand-quilted. And it's pretty heavily quilted as well. Oh, the, the other thing we noticed in the appraisal process is um, there's a, an orange fabric that's repeated throughout, and that fabric has stains in it. And as we looked at it really, really closely it's pretty obvious that the fabric was actually stained before it got pieced into the quilt, which, again, attests to it's most likely it was a kit because, you know, here the quilter had this fabric, something spills on the fabric and her heart just sinks, but she's like, I don't have any other fabric to replace. So she just goes for it and hopes for the best. Now, you know, Beth was looking at the stain and she said it's possible that it wasn't really visible at the time and that it kind of came out with age because you know there's a lot of things that do that when um, either as they get exposed um, to air to light to water whatever um, some stains kind of appear over time so it's possible that the quilter didn't even know that the stain was in there it's also possible that she did and just decided to heck with it I spent money on this kit I better just make the darn quilt so again you know that's another one of those um quilters like the rest of us stories that I really appreciated out of this you know here's this beautiful exquisite uh, quilt and then you find out heck she had to work with stained fabric haven't we all had heartbreaks like that you know so that's a little bit of a background story there now neither of my aunts could identify this quilt um, but due to the timing of it the fact that it was 1940s and that it was um, you know exquisite skill there as well I'm kind of guessing that it was also made by my great-grandmother, the same one that made the tulip quilt. Although, again, neither of my aunts recognized it. Um, one of my aunts did tell me that they had an aunt or two that may have also quilted, but they weren't sure. So it's possible that this was one of my great-grandmother's sisters who quilted, and then it 
got passed down. I don't really know. Um, I just know that it is, you know, it's this beautiful quilt. And if my mom had it, it came from somebody in the family. So I've got this quilt in my heritage. Now, the final quilt um, is the one that made me cry. And that's because as soon as I opened it up, I knew I was looking at something really, really significant here. Uh, This one was labeled. My mom had clearly hung it in the quilt show at one point. And she had labeled it as being made by her great-grandmother in 1891. However, um, as Beth and I looked at it, Beth got very excited about this one. And she she kept asking me, "What? when did your mom say she thought this was made? And I kept saying, well, she says 1891, that's what that's... She, she looked at me funny and I said, okay, what? And I'm thinking she's going to tell me 1940. She said, this was 1860. And my jaw just dropped and my heart stopped. You know, it was just, oh my word. And okay, so let me back up a little bit. This is, um, this was owned by the same aunt that had the tulip quilt and she had also given it to my mom in the 1980s. Uh, This one had actually been on my cousin's bed, I guess, while he was growing up. Um, It's absolutely amazing it survived. I don't think either of them knew it was as old as it was. I mean, clearly my mom thought 1891, which is significant enough, but 1860, I would not have been putting that on a teenage boy's bed. I'll tell you that right now. Um, In any case, so as Beth was looking at this one, um, she appraised it as being 1860s. She said the fabrics were clearly mid-1800s. It's got a cheddar yellow, which she said was an unusual color to see in a pineapple quilt. And I guess typically those pineapple quilts were red and green, which is interesting. Um, and she also said uh, in her written appraisal on this, she consulted with some of other, other quilt historians that she knows. Um, they geographically located this quilt in, in New York State, which matches my mom's side of the family. We've been in uh, the New York State, that branch of the family has been here since the late 1700s. And so, okay, now we know the quilt is 1860 and that it's somewhere in New York State. She also looked at the deter- she determined the the type of quilt stitches, the type of batting. You can still see if you hold it up to the light, you can still see the debris and the cotton seeds in the batting, which also indicate indicates mid eighteen hundreds. Um, so she was quite confident this is an eighteen sixty quilt. So I went back to my aunt and I said, "Okay, um, the appraiser says this quilt is 30 years older than you thought it was, so what does that mean? Who who do we think made this? And so she, um, she talked to me and she said, you know, it was made by my, my mother's great-grandmother. So that would be my great-great-grandmother, if I'm counting up the generations right. Um, and so I did some more genealogical research and I followed the train back that my aunt had indicated and now I know I have a name to put this with this quilt. Um, this quilt was made by Hannah Stowell Bixby uh, who died in 1885 and that's she's my great great grandmother I think. I'd have to look at it again and count back the generations. Um, but if that's the case this quilt makes me at least a fifth generation quilter. And that just changed my whole outlook on my quilting life. Um, so here, here's where we stop looking at the quilts themselves and we look at what this experience has inspired in me. Um, like I said, I used to just think it was mom and then me. 
now I'm finding out I now have in my house a quilt that was made by my great-great-grandmother. And I am able to now place myself in this heritage of quilters that may have skipped a generation in there, because my mom's mother didn't quilt, but my mom's grandmother did, and great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother. <laughs> so there's this this chain of quilters in, in my heritage. Uh, you know, that, that really did change my outlook on my quilting. For many years, I just sort of whipped off projects when I could. You know, I tried to make them good if I could, but it was mostly I didn't have a lot of time. Um, and I just liked playing with the fabrics, and I sort of liked, you know, kind of winging things and and doing it um kind of playing it by ear and just sort of seeing what came out and I still enjoy that I mean that's still fun but looking at these quilts and the fact that they have uh, remained (laughs) through so many generations suddenly makes me really want to step up to the plate and I've become much more intentional about building my skills I'm still not you know really working on a lot of super complex stuff because I still just don't have the time Um, But Beth, in her written appraisal on the pineapple quilt, she listed the workmanship as complicated, heirloom, excellent workmanship. And I'll tell you, seeing that in writing has really, really inspired me to step up to the plate. Um, I know that I want to at least have some quilts that, you know, maybe my grandkids will still be able to look at um, and know that, you know, this was grandma's stuff, great grandma's stuff, whatever. I want this to be part of the family tradition. Um, and also, knowing that I'm part of a long-standing family tradition definitely makes me feel more connected to my ancestral quilters, <laughs> so to speak. Um, like they're now surrounding me in my sewing room and they're egging me on. Uh, to tell the truth, they're probably also periodically wincing. <laughs> and they're probably, once in a while, shaking their heads at me and tut-tutting. Um, but I know, since I'm their great-great-great-grandbaby, that they'll let me get away with murder. All grandparents do. <laughs> so, so I know they're very forgiving, even as they're saying, oh, I wouldn't use that color. Um, in any case, it, it has been a real adventure for me with these um, antique quilts. Obviously, I wish Mom was still around so I could ask her these questions. Where did you get these from? Uh, the fact that... Uh, neither aunt recognize some of them is just even more intriguing. I am trying to follow up on the other branch of the family and um, trying to contact relatives over there to say, hey, do you know, you know, do you know if there were quilters in our family history just to see if I can identify these other um, unfinished tops. Um, But, you know, be that as it may, even if I can't put a name to the quilt, I know it's a family quilt and that means everything. So I'm working on um, more appropriate storage than plastic bags or cat beds. <laughs> and I will be working on the other thing I'm going to be doing is as I do these family genealogies, um, the other thing, I'm the sibling with the most basement space. So I ended up with the family photo albums and all that kind of thing. And we do have ancestral photos, um, not of unfortunately, the 1860 quilt maker. Our photos don't go quite that far back, as far as I know. There might be one in there that's unlabeled. Um, But we do have um, photos of the person who made the tulip quilt. And so what I'm doing is I'm making sure the photos of the quilts are with the people who made them so that, again, future generations won't have to go through the research that I've gone through, that they'll just have the information there. So that's my antique quilt story. 
And I would encourage you, you know, leave comments on the episode show notes about your own antique quilt stories or what you know about your own family heritage. Or if you're starting the heritage in your family, um, what are you doing to document your own quilts? (laughs) But that'll come along in the next episode. We're going to talk more about that. So thank you very much for listening. Again, check out www.quiltingfortherestofus.com. Leave your comments for this episode there. um, Or check out the photos in the Flickr group, and you can leave comments there as well. And again, you can always email me, follow me on Twitter, etc., etc. So, next week's episode, all about documentation and labeling. And until then, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. 